0: You are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast. It's people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund.
1: And I'm Simone Laws with Restore or Retreat.
0: And we have a special version of Delta Dispatches today. We're going to try out kind of a panel-style discussion on the show, a little bit of a discussion a la ronde, if you will, with some of our former guests. rather than kind of interviewing them individually. They all worked and contributed to this exciting white paper that came out about the Mr. Go ecosystem and ongoing needs for restoration and recovery. So wanted to chat with each of them together and get their perspectives. I'm looking forward to it, but how are things going for you, Simone?
1: Everything's good. I like having all of our people in one place. That's easy to be able to <laughs> talk to them about this. Uh, and And it's so interesting that that each one of them knows so much about this particular topic. And so it's always nice to to hear their point of view on this. So how are you? are you are you dealing with the um sports seasons okay where you're just taking it in stride along with twenty twenty?
0: Yeah, I mean, you what can you expect this year when it comes to that, you know, trying to put things in perspective and also, you know, when you have a season like LSU had last season and I mean, I guess even the Saints, right? It's it's sometimes hard to come back from that and kind of have a repeat. So, you know, that that to be honest is the least of of my worries right now and and uh, just hope everyone can play safely. So, um yeah but I mean we are getting closer to fall weather it's I feel like we're getting a tease you know it's like ooh, a cool morning a cool afternoon and then it will get a little warmer but um I am preparing my you know chicken stock gonna start doing some <laughs> soups and gumbos soon um and just a reminder and a shout out that you can go and check out a, a lot of great fall recipes that are um you know used cooking seafood from Louisiana's coast on the Mississippi River Delta website um, at the Coastal Cookbook. There's a lot of delicious new recipes up there.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. Um, It's so funny. You and I were just talking just to talk yesterday, right? You know, not even necessarily about work stuff. And, and the latest recipe came up. So that's pretty funny. I hope that other people's conversations are, are going in that direction too. So yes, it, it's such a great resource to check out and glad that we got some of my Bayou peeps in there as well.
0: Absolutely. Um, yeah, I had never heard of uh, Crawfish A. Stufe. Okay. Um, so. We'll have to try that out, see what it's like. You know, I wonder if it's like a, a pastalaya or something that I was a little skeptical about, you know, but I'm sure it's delicious. So sounds
1: like you need to cook for me and I need to
0: take. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there we go. Um, but well, let's get right to it and bring on our guests. We have um, John Lopez, Coast and cute Community Program Director with the Pontchartrain Conservancy, Amanda Moore, Deputy Director with the Gulf Program, National Wildlife Federation, and Arthur Johnson, Chief Executive Officer with the Lower Ninth Ward Center for Sustainable Engagement and Development. Um, Welcome to the show, everyone.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Good morning.
0: Good morning. All right, well, let's get right into it. John, we're going to start with you. Uh, You were the lead author on the paper, along with Amanda Moore and Paul Kemp. Um, tell us about Mr. Go, The Road to Recovery. What does the paper cover?
3: Well, I think the basic message uh, is in regard to the closure of the uh, MRGO in 2009. And basically, we now have a decade. We can look back and see what's happened. And, um, you know, it's, it's actually, we think, a very good message. Uh, you know, the rock dam was not built purely for ecologic restoration reasons, but but it's actually had a very large ecologic effect, which we think has been very beneficial. Uh, essentially it's, it's reestablished the estuary gradient that was there pretty much before the, the uh, channel was constructed. So we think
1: that's very good. So Amanda, let, let's do a little bit of a history lesson.
2: What is the MRGO?
1: Uh, what does that stand for? And what impact did it have on the communities and the environment?
2: So, Mr. Go stands for Mississippi River Gulf Outlet, and it was built in the early 60s as a deep draft shipping channel that connected the Gulf, essentially, up to the Port of New Orleans. It was built by the Corps, supported by the port, supported by the state, um, and some local communities support as well for it back then. Um, Of course, that was uh, pre-NEPA, National Environmental Policy Act, so um, the the construction of it, um, it's 76 miles long. It destroyed tens of thousands of acres of protective marsh when it was just from construction. Um, It was promised, you know, to the communities that this was going to be an economic boom for them, that this was going to bring development. It was going to be a real game changer for the communities, Um, but no such thing actually happened. Um, And what we know now is that uh, really, it destroyed a lot of the protective coastal buffer and the ecosystem that surrounds the Greater New Orleans area. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's kind of the short story um, of what it was. Pretty depressing.
0: I mean, that is depressing. And I mean, it, we obviously, you know, as you outline in the paper, and, and we've seen in other places, it's had a tremendous impact on the ecosystem, you know, around uh, Orleans, St. Bernard Parish. We also know it's had a tremendous impact, a negative impact on communities. So, Arthur, from your perspective, how did the Mr. Go impact communities in the Lower Ninth Ward and St. Bernard Parish before, during, and and you know, after Katrina?
4: Okay. Well, thanks, Jock. And good morning. Um, I think before Katrina, what we found with the Mr. Go is that you know it really took away from um the watershed, particularly Bayou Bienvenue and its impact on the community for both recreation and even uh, education and science and understanding uh, this, this waterway. And because it came in and destroyed the Cypress Swamp, which was uh, uh, protecting not only the Lower Ninth Ward community, but also the uh, skyline of, of New Orleans and the French Quarter, if any storms came up through the Gulf of Mexico, or in uh, further on the other side, through the uh, mouth of the Mississippi, and so by destroying uh, with Mister letting the solidity into the water and destroying the cypress swamp, then that put the community at risk, and, and really even the city in in at risk as well. After Katrina, or you know, during Katrina, you know what we found is that is more and more people got to understand better about uh, Mistago and what it didn't do as compared to the promises, the economic uh, boost, even for a community like the Lower Nine, which is three quarters surrounded by water, with uh, Bayou Bienvenue on one side and uh, Mississippi River on the other and across is the Industrial Canal. Uh, there was thoughts that this would help to be an economic engine for uh, this, this community. And that didn't happen. Uh, it came to the contrary. And, and so during the Katrina times, you know, we, we saw was a community that was almost destroyed by Katrina. And, uh, and a lot of that blame had to be because of Mystico. Uh, so again, after Katrina uh, and after the Mystico was closed, uh, you know, we started seeing again, opportunity where that threat uh, of, of flooding that happened during Katrina was uh, ceased uh, to some degree. And uh, it, it made people understand better the importance of, of uh, the, what the Mystigo did in relation to the community and the importance of closing that and then trying to be in some reversal recovery aspect to uh, help the community. It also allowed more people to feel more comfortable about uh, being on Bayou Bienvenue and the Bayou Bienvenue Triangle in the Lower Ninth Ward. Um, It also brought a lot of attention from the community engagement aspect that I think wasn't there prior to Katrina in relation of the importance of coastal restoration and understanding that the city of New Orleans is a coastal city. Uh, it also opened up opportunities as well with the Port of New Orleans, who, um, again, was not, um, I think early on was in favor of the mist to go, but then it fell into the point of n- not being, uh, wanting to have it closed. And so at that point, it opened up opportunities with the port and the community to be a little bit more engaged, to get to know each other, to get to know what the concerns were and also as it relates to maritime and economic development along the river and through uh the industrial canal so you know it it really uh you know opened up the eyes of the community it made them become more advocates for uh the close of the Go and keeping the closed. And also, even on a broader basis, understanding what would impact their communities and their quality of life. And so uh, this whole aspect of opening or modifying the opening of the mist to go has not gone very well in relation to uh, how the community sees it.
0: And Arthur, I mean, would you say in some ways and we're going to certainly talk about um, you know, the, the attempts to, I guess, reopen the Mr. Go in the next segment, but, you know, 15 years after Katrina, um, I guess, you know, since the closure of the Mr. Go, I mean, does the legacy of Mr. Go and its impact still linger in those communities?
4: Uh, yes. For, particularly for a lot of the, uh, seasoned residents there who, uh, saw the impact of the Mr. Go and, uh, heard a lot about it through their generations uh, and of course, after, you know, as Katrina hit, that being a, a major component of the flooding in the lower nine and also as it relates to uh, New Orleans East, which is, which is also technically uh, lower nine as well because it's below the industrial canal. And so it's still there. Uh, the younger uh, residents are not as familiar with uh, the history as the uh, older residents are, but collaborating together, and that also brought greater engagement among communities, among intergenerational uh, discussions about the Mystigo, about the coast to coastal lines, uh, the wetlands, what's important about them. You know, um, it also opened up opportunities on education level, K twelve plus uh, universities and colleges. To get to understand better about New Orleans, its makeup, its waterways, uh, the different bodies of water, or watersheds that are throughout the uh, Louisiana and particularly throughout New Orleans. So it, it, that was a positive on that point. And there, so now it also, when every time that you mention uh, the Mister Go, it uh, people are no longer. You're not always having to explain. Well, what does Mister Go stand for? People know. And, and that's been a plus. And that's been something that we've worked with uh, with our community and with other surrounding coastal communities you know, over the last 10 years of just educating them and getting them to understand why they need to be advocates and getting our our um, leaders, our policy leaders also to realize that communities, including urban communities, are very much concerned about what happens on the wetlands and the coastal areas.
1: So, Amanda, uh, tell us about those efforts to close the Mr. Go. How did that happen? It certainly wasn't overnight. Um, What are some of the groups that you worked with, some of the people that were passionate?
2: So, before Katrina, the Mr. Go had already uh, earned the nickname of the Hurricane Highway. Um, And that's because there was just immense erosion happening and there was huge changes happening in, in the whole basin, the Pontchartrain Basin, so people knew, people could kind of unfortunately foresee, you know, what was what was about to happen to them right at the right storm came, and so it had this nickname, and there were organized efforts um, by folks in, in St. Bernard um, to, to close the channel pre-Katrina. Of course, it didn't happen, and it took Hurricane Katrina and all of the catastrophic devastation that came with it to actually get some traction there. Um, And right after Katrina in 2006, John Lopez, who's who's with us today, um, and several other organizations, St. Bernard Parish government, um, they wrote a paper calling for the deauthorization of the channel. And that did come to fruition in the Water Resource Development Act of 2007, right after. Um, and that was where you know, the Congress told the Corps, okay, close the channel and come up with a plan for restoring the ecosystem. So that really started a whole, you know, before Katrina, there were people call it, calling for closure. And then after Katrina, you can only imagine how strong the call foreclosure was. I remember seeing homes, I think it was maybe an maybe Araby, a home that was just off of its foundation. And somebody, the resident had spray painted on the side, their message to the world was close the Mr. Go. So people understood that connection immediately. Um, and there was a huge effort when, so, so actually, so the closure itself was the rock dam at BioLutra. Like that was the closure structure that happened pretty quickly. Cause you had the WERDA came out in 2007, then in 2009, they were closing the channel. Um, and that's when I came in, I, I actually went out, um, in St. Bernard, they had really early, early, early one morning. We all got on an oyster boat. It was super misty, and there was a rock throwing ceremony to kind of like symbolically begin the closure, of the building of the rock dam. Um, and there were a lot of those people who had spent their whole life calling for closure were on that boat. So it was pretty special um, time. So, but that's kind of when I came in. And then um, at, from that point, a lot of focus started. Uh, to be on the actual restoration plan for closure. And that's where we saw um, unprecedented stakeholder engagement between the core and the community and local governments, and also unprecedented numbers of public comments going in. We had, we broke the record for the New Orleans district. And I think the record still holds. Um, We had up 70,000 Public comments go in about the restoration plan for the Mister Go. So, it just shows you how much um, concern there was from community um, and from people all over the nation. Really, uh, were paying attention and want this this wrong. Um, you know, they wanted some justice to happen. Um, and same thing with the 2012 master plan that that restoration plan, kind of the. The height of it was around 2012, At the same time the 2012 Coastal Master Plan came out. Of course, they covered uh, the state side, um, restoration for the Mr. Go area, and um, our groups, again, hit, we were the bulk of the comments um, on the 2012 Master Plan was coming out of the Mr. Go effort. So a huge amount of, of effort there. Um, and I'll talk more about, about the coalition later, but you know, there were 17 groups in the coalition, and and there was a lot more than that um, that have, have been, you know, since Katrina for 15 years have been die, you know, steady advocates on the closure. effort.
0: Wow. I mean, that, that really is an incredible, you know, history and effort that was undertaken. And, and it must be so rewarding to see the impacts of those efforts. Um, John, I want to dig into the positive impacts of the closure a little bit more in the white paper Um, you say that the result of reducing the unnatural saltwater intrusion has brought historical salinity gradients back to over 1.2 million acres of coastal habitat. That is a huge area. So what does that area all encompass?
3: Uh, Well, uh, it is huge. Uh, It represents uh, probably uh, about 60 or 70 percent of what most people think of the Pontrain Basin. But but includes, of course, Lake Pontchartrain, Lake Maripa, all the swamps. It includes Lake Bourne, Chandler Sound, uh, the Biloxi Marsh, uh, you know, almost the entire basin. About the only area that was not affected by the closure was the area immediately adjacent to the Mississippi River. Um, so, yes, it's huge, and, and it's something that uh, is bigger than we anticipated. The uh Prior work we had done had estimated that the impact of the MRGO was about half of that. But once they closed it and we saw the response of the system, we actually had a much better, clearer picture of, of the vast extent of the impact. And uh, basically, uh, we see that through the salinity of the surface water, just the water in the lake and so forth. But we also see it in the, the change in the salinity in the soils, the, the, what they call the cool water salinity. And that's actually the data that was used for that 1.2 million acre uh, estimate. So it's it's very clear data. It shows uh, you know these patterns of the, the salinity. It's, it's like someone threw a light switch in 2009. The, the, the uh, change began immediately. It didn't all happen at once, but the change began immediately when they closed the channel in 2009. And just to add one little exclamation point, on, on the, the scale of the impact before, uh, there's an area not too far from uh, uh, the uh, uh, lower nine, basically part of the central wetlands, that uh, we have photo documentation. Uh, and it shows that it, when the MRGO was open, you can see where oysters were actually growing on cypress knees. So those trees that author was talking about that were killed The salinity got so high, it not only killed the oyster, I mean, the uh, cypress trees, but you had oysters then trying to grow, and and that's basically a a totally unnatural condition. You know, those cypress trees and oysters should be miles and miles apart at other ends of the estuary, and and that's more or less what we see now, that kind of restoration. So areas like uh, in the the Lower Ninth Ward, in the Triangle area uh, that Arthur was describing, the salinities there are now getting more appropriate for RR, uh, to, uh to have sipes trees again. So that, that's part of our optimism about going forward. Uh, as we said in the uh, paper, this is the change has been significant, but it really just kind of sets the stage for what needs to be done now. And part of that is planting trees, just like in uh, the triangle area.
0: Yeah. And in the paper, you do mention how the closure has benefited everything from cypress trees to oysters. So as you said earlier, the full range of the estuary. Um, In addition to that, you know, oysters, you said, are kind of, again, in their natural habitat, more in the Biloxi Marsh. And cypress trees are able to plant more in these like central wetlands areas or even into the Morra Swamp it having an impact there. You also mentioned clams in the lake. So tell us a little bit about how the closure has benefited clams and, and kind of the value of that species.
3: Yeah, you know, uh, the range of clam is, is sometimes forgotten, uh, although people often see it. It's the common little white clam shell you see in driveways, uh, road beds all around the city. Uh, at one point, there was massive commercial mining of Clam shell from Lake Pontchartrain. And that was uh, an impact in itself. Uh, but even when the, the clams could survive and the, and the shell dredging was banned in 1992, uh, the MRGO was still open. And what we saw was that uh, there was a, a dead zone forming in, in Lake Pontchartrain every year. And this is basically uh, high salinity water that came through the MRGO would come into the lake sit on the bottom the water would be, have low oxygen become stagnant and it would kill the clams every year so basically there was a, a portion of the lake where you never saw uh, any mature clams because there would, any little clams would be killed every summer by the low oxygen so that that was one uh impact for lake Ponchetrain train and since the closure we, we don't see that dead zone and, uh, and the clams have been generally recovering uh, and although there are many drivers to it aside from uh, the MRGO, uh, the salinity, the storm, so there's a lot of effects on the clams, but the dead zone is no longer there from from the MRGO channel, so that's a big plus, Uh, but also because of the uh, change in the salinity gradient Lake Bourne, which at one time had Rangia clam is now reestablished for Rangia clam. So we're, we're seeing the clam expand back out to its its, its historic range. Uh, the clams are not eaten by, by people or, or uh, generally. There, there are some people that, that do eat Rangia clams, but generally not. It's not a commercial crop, but it's very important for at least two reasons. Uh, like many bivalves uh, in various ecosystems, uh they're a filter feeder and so they help clean the water, clarify the water. Uh but they're also uh at the bottom of the food chain and, and a very important part of the food chain. Uh uh, uh some fish like drum uh eat rangia clam but also uh uh Punch Trains uh famous blue crabs uh eat rangia clams and then those that is a very important commercial fishery for the lake. So uh the clam, like I said, it's it's a little bit of a kind of a forgotten hero, uh, but it, it's it it is uh, uh, very important for for the reason I just described, and it also kind of helps complete the picture here that I was describing. Uh, the ranga kind of occupy that middle ground between the freshwater swamp and the oysters, so it's another part of this continuous uh, estuarine gradient, and and basically seeing. The habitats uh, revive themselves with the mrgo closure
1: I I love that idea of the the mighty little mascot clam for the for the lake I, I love that story it's interesting. Um, about how much that affects. Um, we we want to take a short break. Um, we still have more to talk about. Um, when, we, when we come back, we want to talk about restoration progress and the needs of the mystical ecosystem, the community, and, and other developments. Um, so we hope that John, Mandy, and Arthur will stay on with us. Um, before we close out, though, we want to give the coastal voice of the week. Our work in the Lower Ninth Ward recovery was made necessary in large part because of the destruction of our coastal wetlands. They must be preserved, maintained, replaced, and cared for. And that comes from Laura in New Orleans, Louisiana. Just a reminder, you can add your coastal voice at mississippiriverdelta.org slash restore dash the dash coast. Right, Jacques?
0: Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better than Laura. And what a great conversation we've been having with Arthur, John and Mandy. Um, I love the history. I love seeing hopeful signs of progress. Um, So we're going to talk about ongoing needs for restoration and kind of where things go from here. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with our guests after the break. And we're back. Thank you for listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And today we're discussing a very specific area of Louisiana's coast, mainly the Mr. Go ecosystem and the Pontchartrain um, Basin. And it's time for the coastal stat of the week. This is from the new white paper that is out that our guests are discussing. And the stat is that the Mr. Go, a deep draft shipping channel constructed in the early 1960s, subsequently destroyed and degraded vast landscapes of protective coastal wetlands. When Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005, storm surge from the Mr. Go caused numerous levee breaches and catastrophic flooding, claiming the lives of hundreds of people in New Orleans East, Lower Ninth Ward, and St. Bernard Parish. Despite strong organized calls for closure in the years prior to Katrina, The channel remained open until Congress closed it in 2009. Mr. Go negatively affected over 1 million acres of coastal habitat. While not foreseen at the time of federal deauthorization, the navigational closure of the Mr. Go has benefited Louisiana's coastal ecosystems more than any other restoration and recovery project implemented since Hurricane Katrina.
1: Well said, Jacques. Um, and we want to talk about that more with Arthur, John, and Mandy, who are joining us after the break. Um, let, let's get started with Mandy. Um, the Mr. Go Must Go Coalition put out the report, Mr. Go, The Road to Recovery. So tell us about that coalition, who's part of it, and then you know other organizations that, that have supported this effort as well.
2: Sure. So the Mr. Go Must Go Coalition actually came together as a coalition in 2006. So it's a 14-year-old coalition and still very active every single year. Um, And the first founders is actually a kind of very murky, Hard to figure out exactly the inception because I've asked a lot of different folks and I get different answers every time about like that 2006 story. Um but from from reading the Tea Leaves, I feel like some of the initial groups were like Pontchatrain Basin Foundation, of course, now it's Pontchartrain Conservancy, the CSED and uh sierra club and grn which is now healthy golf I think those were some of the very initial groups that started organizing together and then in 2008 we um we got fancy because we actually um were able to have like a coordinator position and that was through the national wildlife federation so um Juanita Constable was our scientist, and she was one of like our three staff in Louisiana, and I think she lived in Lafayette at the time, but she was at first coordinating, um, and then in 2009, um, that was a big part of my job when I started with the National Wildlife Federation, um, and at that point, we had 17 organizations, a part of the coalition, and um, still to this day, like I was saying, we comment on any major anniversaries. And any projects in the Mr. Go ecosystem area, so it's quip or a restore nerd of like we're busy all the time. And I will say that we pretty much every time get full sign off from all seventeen organizations. Um, and I can rattle off the names of those organizations because, as you can guess, I've been doing this for over a decade um, and getting sign offs every year. But um, shout out to all 17. So you have Pontchartrain Conservancy, Sierra Club, levees.org, National Wildlife Federation, Environmental Defense Fund, National Audubon Society, Louisiana Environmental Action Network, Lower Mississippi River Keeper. Coalition to Restore Coastal Louisiana, Healthy Gulf, Lower Ninth Ward Center for Sustainable Engagement and Development, Mary Queen of Vietnam Community Development Corporation, Louisiana Wildlife Federation, Holy Cross Neighborhood Association, American Rivers, Global Green, and the Coalition Against Widening the Industrial Canal. And that's our group. and we also pretty much always have a lot of friends that sign on depending on you know what the topic is, what the project is. It is not uncommon on this white paper. We had the Orleans Audubon Society, always a great friend. The Deep South Center for Environmental Justice is always super helpful. Lower9.org, 350 NOLA, Common Ground Relief, the Water Collaborative and the two groups from St. Bernard signed on to this, which are the Miro Foundation and the St. Bernard Wetlands Foundation. So um, it's not uncommon for us to have kind of really broad and, and robust uh, sign off. There's still so much interest and concern in this issue and wanting to see progress.
0: That's really incredible, Mandy. And I, I, I you know, have no surprise that you can just uh, rattle off all the organizations at a minute's notice because I know how much work goes into maintaining that coalition and, you know, securing sign-offs and, and to kind of get that kind of, you know, approval from such a broad and wide coalition. I mean, a lot of that, you know, is due to the work that you do and John and others. So huge congratulations on that. And, and really, you know, um, thanks from all of us for that, that important work. I do want to talk a little bit about one of the key elements that the white paper highlights. And I'll stick with you, Mandy. Um, You know, while the closure has had a huge, massive benefit on the ecosystem, you know, there's still much work that remains in terms of implementing restoration projects. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the progress on the restoration side, but also some of the ongoing needs?
2: Absolutely. So we have um, a lot of, um, hold on, guys, hold on, guys. It's COVID and my son just walked in and hold on.
0: No worries. We've all been there for for uh, no doubt, and that's just like, hey, we keep it real and at this past So yeah. I'm
2: sorry. I'm sorry. You guys want to keep going or?
0: Yeah, let's keep going. Okay, you know,
2: okay. I... I thought I had the door locked, guys. Oh well. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, momming. Okay, so um, completed. So there's there's been you know there's so much to be really proud of, and there's been so much progress made, um, hundreds of millions of dollars are like being allocated right now for restoration um, in the Mr. Go ecosystem area. But if you look at the actual projects that have been completed, it's pretty minor, 15 years out from the storm. Um, and you've got some shoreline work around Lake Bourne and you've got some um, oyster reef work um, in Marsh, And so um, those are important projects and great projects. I think the bigger story is probably what's coming online. So, um, you know, the the ecosystem impact, it goes from Moripaw all the way down to Chandler Island. So you've got the river reintroduction into Moripaw Swamp that's being um, moving uh, forward right now. And that is is a huge deal. That's 45,000 acres um, that will be benefited from that project. As you come down um, the basin, you'll get to the Orleans land bridge. Um, What's happened out there is a lot of small mitigation and quipper projects, maybe up to like a thousand acres. I mean, not so much. Um, If you want to compare that, if you look at what's called for in the coastal master plan right now, it's it's like over 30,000 acres. So, you know, really relatively small scale. I don't think 30,000 acres will probably ever happen, Um, but there is one huge opportunity moving forward that Mr. Go Must Go um, and others will be working on, which is kind of lining up the Orleans Land Bridge for the next tranche of NERDA dollars. That's a a big push that we want where we can get some larger scale restoration out there on that really important uh, wetland area. Speaking of NERDA dollars, the big story. that has come out recently is that the largest by acreage project that it will be done in Louisiana to date is on the Lakeborn land bridge, um, right between Lakeborn and the Mr. Go down near Shell Beach. Um, and that is, um, a really big project. Anybody know off the top of their heads? I think it's 1,500 acres maybe. I can't remember it off the top of my head, but it's a, it's a, it's a very big, um, very big project out there. And the Golden Triangle, where the Mr. Go and the Gulf Intercoastal Waterway come together, the infamous funnel, where you've got the $1.3 billion surge barrier. Um, that has about 600 acres moving forward of restoration. Again, like the master plan and the Army Corps call for about 4,000 acres out there. So it just gives you an idea. Oh, also, by Aluja Ridge. So that one, the master plan calls for. 20, 20 miles, you've got about five and a half miles in planning happening right now. So there's there's a lot of significant projects moving forward, um, and but there's still a long ways to go out there.
0: So, Mandy, it is exciting to see some of that progress. Um, at the same time, I know you mentioned in the white paper um, that um, Congress actually called, or I believe it was the Army Corps general at the time, called for um, significant funding to restore the Mr. Go ecosystem and, and some of that funding hasn't been authorized, I believe. So in your mind, why has there not been more progress? Is it, is it a funding issue or, or what's happening there?
2: Well, funding's always a huge deal. And, and there's been a cost share issue since, you know, the word of happened. Um, like who pays for the actual restoration? I mean, that's the big dollar thing. And I mean, you're talking billions and billions of dollars. And, um, and there's been a cost share dispute, which has gone to court. And it has been uh, gone over many, many times. And unfortunately, really, there's essentially no has been no resolution to that. So to date, as a result of that, the Army Corps, even though the Assistant Secretary of the Army you know, already recommended over a billion dollars of projects to Congress to, to you know, move forward with, the, they have been no uh, allocations of funding for Mr. Go ecosystem restoration from the federal government. So that's one thing. And the, the state obviously is using a lot of their Deepwater Horizon funds and other sources to try to get some, some projects moving and, and they've done a pretty good job, but you know, you're still, there's a loser when, when the two parties can't figure out how to work together and leverage resources. And I think it's, you know, it's the communities that are still sitting there without the restoration that they need to protect them.
1: So Arthur, let's let's switch to the community impact um, and and what could be threatened if we reverse the progress that we've made so far. Let's talk about that. And, and do you have any other concerns?
4: Well, uh, let's we'll start with that. The the communities themselves. Um, you know the the progress that has been made and the the blood, sweat, and tears to get to that progress is, is so important that now the community is. I would say much more awake of and concerned about the issues. Um, so we don't want to lose that now in community interest, but more so it, it has enhanced the quality of life for our communities, realizing the importance that our wetlands and our and our coastal restoration efforts make in the development of, of our coastal communities. Um, that goes from both education, uh, recreation, housing issues, economic development. Um, these, and, and these are all in job employment, and these are all key factors that are there in our communities. Um, the restoration efforts, um, have become even more, um, significant as we are now dealing with, with, uh, over 19 health issues. Uh, an economic stressor that's impacting everybody that also impacts that quality of life. Uh, So to lose progress or for that progress not to be significant on the high end of change means that, you know, this is going to be a a downfall for not only the coastal communities, but also for our cities and, and, and really for our, our nation, uh, because so much is fed through our our coastal areas, uh, port cities all across this country. And I think in in more recent times, particularly since um, the disaster of Hurricane Katrina, we've been able to realize and recognize nationwide and maybe even globally the importance of coastal cities, what they bring in, particularly on the economic development component. And, and and so those are key. I, I think that as we're understanding also our ecosystems, and what does that mean to our existence? You know, fresh air, uh, fresh water, the quality of our air and the quality of our water has now become even more important as we're realizing how the impact in, in, in impacts our health. Um So with COVID-19 being there and health disparities in communities being so important of how you uh, deal with this uh, pandemic and how you'll come out on the other side of that, you're realizing that a lot of preparation still needs to be there so that we can make sure that we're as healthy as possible. We have healthy communities when we're hit with uh, a natural disaster such as this pandemic. And also continuing about health. Also, as our community, nationwide, globally, is um, growing and becoming uh, with more, with greater uh, people, older people, then we realize too that if we don't take uh, mission in our own hands, meaning in the community to help our policy leaders understand the importance of our ecosystems, of the health of our communities, the quality of our air, the quality of our water on all in a positive nature, and and how the, the habitats play a key role in keeping us in healthy and, and growth, um, you know, then we're we're gonna lose out. And I think the community is understanding that more. It is pushing harder to these policymakers for them to be more educated and to make better decisions. And, um, you know, this falls right into our, our civic duty that is important our community is seeing to put the right people in the right positions to to make those decisions that truly understand and are not going to just make decisions based on um, what they see as their agenda, but really is the agenda of the people who put them in place. So th- these are really some of the key factors that are starting, have evolved over, I'll say, over the last 10 uh, 10 years or so 10 to 15 years particularly and it's not only just in southeast part of the country but it's all over this country you know we're seeing the different uh, issues uh, environmental issues man-made and natural disasters from fires to tornadoes to flooding to weather patterns changing where you know it's not just a hurricane that's flooding but it's really uh, weather patterns that are changing in our atmosphere and that are impacting our quality of life, uh, where we live, you know, what we eat, um, you know, the cost of things, the, our whole economic development strand. So, so these are really the, the important things that are there. And we're seeing this more and more every day. We're seeing also communities of color, um, equity inclusion, is being pushed very hard to be part of the decision-making process, not on the outcome of decisions being made by others who don't live in those communities or not impacted is severely about some of the decisions that are being made. So, so that's pushing hard. So there are a lot of things that are all squeezing in in 2020 (laughs) is really becoming uh, a very interesting uh, year as we're, we're seeing, so much of this playing a role in, in in our discussions, and we're seeing this in the communities as well. There, you know, every day we're we're talking about a multitude of different uh, challenges that are there, and, and different issues that the community is also becoming much more diverse and much more educated uh, about their discussions.
0: Yeah, I mean that's such an important overview of how, you know, a project like the Mr. Go can compound so many different issues and and we've certainly seen that um, in 2020 in the midst of a pandemic and then of course with this hurricane season right which in some ways knock on wood southeast Louisiana New Orleans has, you know, fared pretty well compared to our neighbors in the southwest but it's just a reminder that, you know, that is always a constant threat and on the minds of people in the community. So Um, Thank you for for that, Arthur, and for kind of helping us understand really what's at stake and some of the history there. John, I want to move to you and kind of close out this discussion. I mean, we'd be remiss not to mention that um, there are active discussions by some um, who are seeking to uh, alter or or open the Mr. Go and the Rock Dam closure. So can can you tell us about that and, and any potential concerns you have about how opening or altering the rock dam might threaten some of the progress we've seen so far.
3: Uh, sure, Jack. Uh, of course, if anyone's looked at the, our paper, it, we I think we lay out a pre- pretty clear case, as I described earlier, why we think the the rock dam has been beneficial. Uh, I think the science is pretty uh, compelling on that. Uh, however, that there has been a different narrative that's been out there and, uh, I think that narrative tends to come from uh, a narrow stakeholder interest and that's certainly you know what what is reasonable and expected that uh in particular oyster fishermen who uh may feel the effects of the rock dam uh and we think that actually the rock dam creates well we know it creates an opportunity for the oyster fishermen but that's not to say that doesn't cause challenges for them in transition. So kind of acknowledge that yes, some of them are gonna be affected and they're gonna have to make adjustments based to this new world for oysters with the MRGO closure. However, you know it's our responsibility like the state to look at the the larger perspective and look at not just one particular species, not just one particular stakeholder interest. So that's exactly what we're trying to do in in the, the paper is to lay out looking at the entire estuary. And when you look at that, once again, it, it, it's pretty compelling, and so we think that is the uh, kind of what the science is, and basically where someone would go if they were looking at it from the the larger perspective, and not just from a narrow stakeholder interest. Nevertheless, uh, some of these uh, individuals or groups that are interested in this issue uh, have pushed to create an opening in the rock dam, and it's a relatively small opening. Uh, some have. It, Early call for removing the entire thing or a large portion of it. At this point, it seems like a modest change, uh, and, and that may turn out to be the case. But but the science and the engineering, the study has not been done on that to actually prove that. So we are very concerned that this would be what seems like a small step backwards, but could be a huge leap backwards. Uh, the closure has frankly worked so well, uh, especially with the oysters and reestablishing the historic oyster beds. You really hate to mess with something that's not broke, as they say. Uh, and uh, so we, our, our pushback is to try and uh, explain to people what the science seems to be telling us, but also demand that if there's any consideration to modifying the structure, that you know it's held up to a very high standard in terms of the investigation to show exactly what it will do so that there are not consequences that are unanticipated and, and maybe you know, negative, and once again, could be just a big step backwards.
1: So, Mandy, let's uh, remind folks where they can find the paper and how they can get involved in supporting your efforts with the Mr. Go coalition.
2: You can find the paper at MrGoMustGo.org, M-R-G-O-MustGo.org, and under the tab reports, it's the first thing up there. You can also read about um, our positions. We've written a couple letters to governor um, on uh, right below that as well under reports and and releases, Uh, and then also uh, find us on Facebook at MrGoMustGo. And um, you can always reach out to me or John or Arthur if you're interested um, in finding out more about the coalition and how to get involved.
0: Well, awesome. And thank you all so much. I mean, this has been a really in-depth, comprehensive and engaging conversation about a very important topic. So I highly encourage, encourage everyone to go online to the Mr. Go website, read the white paper, Um, and get involved with the organizations that are working to restore the Mr. Go ecosystem. Um, Of course, because this is Delta Dispatches, we can't let you all go without asking a fun question. And it's hard to believe, but Halloween is right around the corner. So um, our fun question for today is, what is your favorite Halloween candy? Let's start alphabetically. Let's go with you, Arthur.
4: Well, uh, it's probably um, Snickers um that I like uh personally I like it and I guess because it's a mixture of as peanuts as caramella as chocolate so it's a combination of all my favorite pieces all wrapped up in one and I think it uh if you believe the commercial says it gives you energy and if you don't get your snicker you turn into something other than who you are so. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> that, that significance is important to me.
0: <laughs> Good answer. John, how about you?
3: Well, uh, I think the closest thing, I, I, I don't eat candy very much. I, I think the closest thing would be a uh, liquid form that comes in a green bottle.
0: Hey, that's uh, you know candy for adults. So good answer uh, as well. Um, and then we'll go with your your not your actual name, but your the, we call you. So Mandy, um, what is your favorite uh, Halloween candy?
2: I, I was thinking Snickers too. So I'm a huge candy person. I'm a chocolate freak. So it, it's kind of hard. I mean, Hershey's with dark almonds, but they don't put that in in, in Halloween candy. So. <laughs> But um, so that
1: or Snickers? No, let's make Shock answer this question. You know, I think it's just a Halloween thing, but I really
0: like the little, like, individual size Butterfingers. Um, mm-hmm. I don't normally like; I could never eat a, a whole Butterfinger, but for some reason, the Halloween size, I just like. I love those, so I, I'll go with that. What about That's you, good. Simone?
1: Um, so this is this is uh, a taste that has evolved over the years, like liking frozen margaritas to now liking regular margaritas. But I love Almond Joys. And same thing with you, Jacques, that I could not eat a whole Almond Joy. And maybe it's because that's the only thing my kids leave after they pick out the good stuff, like the Snickers and those kinds of things. But I love them. I love Almond Joys.
0: All right. Well, those are all good answers. Seems like Snickers won the day. Um, And thanks again. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Thanks again to all of our guests for this conversation. um, And thank you all at home for listening to Delta Dispatches. We'll be back next week with some more great content. See you then.